I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Ashley Brzezicki is a death doula. She says there is cultural suffering and conditioning we have around the topic of death. Today, we shed light on this topic that is often avoided. She shares her experience with death and what she is learning as a death doula. You will learn what she does and how she came to be on this path. It is such a warm conversation. Let's dive in. Ashley Brzezicki, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Hi, Dana. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming to have this conversation with me, because if I think back over the past four years when I've done podcasting, um, I've only had one conversation around death. And maybe it, it doesn't sound like an uplifting topic, but it's something that we're all going to go through. We all experience it in our lives. And on your Instagram, you say, our death avoidance is so bad in our culture that we can't even have an honest conversation without getting suspicious that death is somehow lurking around the corner simply because we're talking about it. So you are a death doula. So first of all, what is a death doula? So a death doula is a person who has training in non-medical care related to the death and dying process. Uh, So it's not a medical professional. It's not a regulated healthcare profession. It's simply a companion. So a lot of people have heard of birth doulas, for example, Mm -hmm. where that person is is there to support the needs of the um, uh, person who is going to be undertaking labor and birth. A very similar idea, just other end of life. So we're kind of bookending the two ends of of a person's life. Yeah. Mm. How did you get interested in this work? Because you are uh, are a uh, registered massage therapist. That's what you do um, professionally. Uh, Was this linked in some way or? Mm -hmm. Um, So that... That is a little bit of a longer story. We can go into it as as deep as as you like. Um, but I almost feel the need that I, I have to contextualize it a little bit because that context is important to how I became interested in studying and contemplating mortality and death and and life and that sort of thing. Um, so no, this wasn't, I, if you had have talked to me 20 years ago, I would have never considered that I would, uh, I didn't even know that death doula existed back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I will say is that, uh, the context of my life is I was born into an immigrant family and my family's Polish, hence the last name. Uh, it's just my nuclear family that lives in the Maritimes in Canada. The rest of my family, everybody else, except for one cousin in BC, lives in Poland. And so all of the members of my family that would have been uh, more elderly, uh, anyone that has gotten sick, they're all far away. I, I never, I was never exposed to, uh, I was never exposed to death itself, really. I mean, it's something that you see in movies and things like that, but we already know that that's not real life. So I, I just never had to consider it in my own life personally until this moment happened in high school. Uh, I was volunteering at the hospital at that time. I had a neighbor that I was always very fond of. His name was Mr. Fisher. 
In high school, I was told by my parents that Mr. Fisher had been diagnosed with uh, cancer and it was going to progress very quickly. Because I wasn't exposed to death, I didn't know how to handle that information. And the only thing I knew what to do uh, was to just compartmentalize that information and tuck it away. So for better or worse, I just, I heard the information, then I never processed it. I was just like, I don't know what to do with that. Tucked it aside. And then fast forward a few months, I'm volunteering at the hospital. It wasn't even in my frame of reference that I might run into him, but that's what ended up happening. So I was taking the book cart along. I look over, there's an open room. I see a face and I just, I stopped dead in my tracks because I'm like, I don't know who that is yet, but I know that I know that face. And it just, it washed over me all of a sudden. I realized that it was my neighbor. Uh, Obviously he had declined rapidly. And so the face that I recognized, there was something in his eyes that I recognized, but the rest of the entire thing looked very scary to me. I mean, his eyes were sunken. He was very, very frail looking. The room that he was in was dark and clinical and stagnant, like the air felt heavy. The, the, like, I just, I get, I almost get wound up just like replaying it because it was such a vivid moment to me. And it really, it really stuck with me. I did not know how to handle that. And so I just simply walked on. And that was a really pivotal moment in my life because I looked at it as if I had failed at my humanity. And so I I struggled with that for a long time, uh, like a decade. I never talked to anybody about it. I didn't even tell my parents that I saw Mr. Fisher. I just had this wash over me as if I wasn't I, I was aware of my own mortality, but I wasn't afraid of death until that moment. And then I didn't know how to work past it. And I went, I w- I went to uh, Mount Allison University. I took anthropology, my background. And because of what anthropology is, it's basically the scientific study of, of humankind. That was the moment that I realized that a lot of the suffering that we have around death is a cultural construct. We don't get to see death. The, the moment that uh, the Industrial Revolution touched medicine, death became a profession. It became a medical event. It became something that we don't get to interact with uh, as, as much as we used to. And because of that, where there is silence and secrecy and lack of exposure, oftentimes people get scared. And that is that was my experience. And then I realized that it's actually the experience of a lot of people. And that was when I really started processing uh, the what I'm going to call trauma around that event. And then fast forward many more years, <laughs> I went forward. I, I became actually I'm a master's trained uh, archaeologist. I left that career to become a registered massage therapist. And it wasn't until I started working in manual therapy that I recognized hey, maybe my experience with this whole death thing, maybe that can plug into this career. And that's when I went and, and, and did a death doula training. And now I'm going to be uh, rolling out some courses for other massage therapists so that there will be a whole bunch of us that are trained and how to contemplate life and death, uh, how to help people process uh, this kind of event in their own lives. So I'm I'm really really excited. I'm so excited yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, and and that's so interesting that you've intertwined that with your massage therapy because I was wondering where you were going with that because I thought do you, you must have patients 
that come for massage therapy who maybe maybe you know that they're dying or not or they're going through something that could end, end in that way. Uh, mm-hmm. d- do you integrate it in that way too or no? So that's the that's the interesting thing about um, about the way that we're trained as massage therapists and just the way that death works, right? So death doesn't it it doesn't uh, discriminate. Like at any point, if you're if you're a massage therapist who is not even interested in this topic, at some point, statistically speaking, one of your clients is going to come in and say, "Hey, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer." Mm. And if you have the training to know how to navigate that, then you're just in a better position to, at the very least, have a, a conversation around that topic that won't end up leaving that person feel even more isolated in their experience. For me personally, and I will say that the COVID uh, pandemic has been a little bit of a thorn in my side because when the COVID pandemic happened, a lot of the hospices, hospices and palliative care, all of that had shut down to... Uh, people coming in to help, it was really kind of reduced to just the essential medical staff. So I actually didn't get to work with anyone um, very directly. I do have one client right now that I'm seeing at the hospital, but that's that's what I'm hoping to integrate. So all of the information that I have from my death doula training, uh, the contemplative work that you can do with people, helping them process grief as they're moving along, Death doulas often end up working with their clients for many months, if not potentially years. Um, you do things like legacy projects. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's, it's, it's a companionship, right? So you're not there just for the event itself. A lot of death doulas are trained to work through the grief process with the families even after the person has died. And that's oftentimes when people struggle um, maybe not the most, but in a different way, right? The event has already happened. They've, they've moved past that, but now they're like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to live the rest of my life without this essential person in my life. Mm -hmm. So it's really, there are so many layers to what death doulas can do. There are death doulas that specialize in, for example, miscarriage and abortion care. There are death doulas that are strictly interested in um, suicide and suicide care. There are death doulas that help people create their advanced care plans. So there, you can you can deconstruct this profession in so many different ways. For me specifically, so, I'm interested in doing uh, body work, helping a person feel like there's still like there's still joy to experience through touch, mm. and that's that's where I really want to thrive. Mm. Just so sensory what experiences. Happens, yeah, I get that. For sure. And it makes sense with your massage therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, does, do people hire you for this? Do families seek you out or people, or a person who's dying seek you out? Or is this through a volunteer setting? You mentioned hospice and palliative mm-hmm. care. So h- how does that work? So I am in touch with um, the hospice in Moncton. We're going to be working to, we, we haven't ironed out all of the details, but we are going to be working together um, hopefully be unraveling at least a couple projects together. Uh, I do have one client, like I mentioned, there at the hospital. So people can hire me. Again, that hasn't happened uh, to a great degree yet just because of the COVID pandemic, but that will be something that will that, that I will be advertising. The problem that I'm running into, 
And part of the reason why I'm so excited to do these podcasts, because I've done a few now, is that people don't even know that death doulas exist. Correct. So, exactly. So people don't know that you can Google this. Like this is a this is a profession. This is a thing. Uh, death doulas are often plugged in to um, help with the gaps in healthcare. So nurses don't have the time. I mean, they just don't. Nursing is uh, in a, in a worried state right now in our province, there's not enough nurses and the ones that we have left over are, are burned out and tired. They, you know, when a, when a caretaker is burned out and tired, the quality of care often declines and that's not their fault. That's, uh, a thorn that we have in our system, in our healthcare system. So having more people, having more caretakers around people that can spend the time to have conversations with family members and with patients where otherwise that healthcare worker just simply does not have the time that can help invigorate people again, help them feel like they're not just a a disease because we run a biomedical model of healthcare here where we chase a disease diagnosis Well, in the process of focusing on that, making that the focal point, oftentimes the people that are uh, attached to that disease, they start feeling less person-like and more like a, a kind of experiment. You're getting poked all the time. You're getting blood drawn, you know, specialists in and out, that sort of thing. You start really detaching from your experience of being integrated with a community. There's a lot of isolation that happens in the biomedical model. So death doulas are really great at um, just coming in and just helping people feel like humans, like human beings. Human beings. So that what does that first conversation them. look like when you first go in to see a client? Is that, um, is it, it just <clears throat> sit and connect with them? It feels like it's a, a lot of emotional care. Like you say, it's filling in the gaps, the piece, not the, the piece where someone is feeling like an experiment poked and prodded. You're doing the piece where it actually says, how are you doing? Yeah, that's exactly it. So Mm. there's the manual therapy side of things where it's like, would you like a massage? How do you want to feel today? What areas do you want to work on? How how are you feeling in your body? That sort of thing. Um, But this thing happens extremely naturally when people are faced with difficulty and challenge in their lives. They often look for the safest person in the room to talk to. And if they know that you've got specific training and they get the sense that you're a safe person and can hold a conversation, they will often start bouncing ideas off of you. Questions like, what do you think happens after we die? Or, um, you know, just wanting to talk about, again, trying to reinvigorate themselves, wanting to be more than just a body in a bed in a Johnny shirt, you know, talking about the art that they used to create or the travels that they used to have. A lot of it is just simply holding space for conversation. And at times when the conversation gets a little bit more tricky, um, having the training and the skills to navigate that conversation without making that person feel even more isolated. Because I, I can give you an example. People will will use the example of family members surrounding a person that's uh, looking at facing their death. So what happens is very naturally, um, people will start saying things like, you know, I'm, I'm dying. I'm, I'm dying. And then family members, they just don't know what to say to that because immediately their mind starts 
going into different uh, different directions of thought. Like, are they saying I'm dying because they're afraid, or are they say are they saying I'm dying because they're trying to move towards acceptance? Well, I don't want to accept this. I'm not ready to accept this, so I don't want to hear about them talking about that that they're dying. Right. So all of a sudden, everyone's egos are in the mix. So having someone who's um, egos and fears, I should say, it's not, it's not a bad thing. If you have an ego around death, everyone does. Everyone's afraid of death. We're neurologically wired to be afraid of death. So everyone at some point is going to be afraid of something related to their own mortality. Um, it's just this, those specific fears will be very individualistic. So for me, I'm no longer afraid of, at the notion that one day I won't be alive, that one day I won't be here. I'm more worried about the notion that as I'm dying, my sense of vitality will leave because I don't want to be in a barren room with, you know, just this like heaviness in the air. The air is not fresh. I haven't felt the wind on my face in a while. I haven't felt the grass beneath my feet. I'm, I already know that if I get sick, I want to still feel like I'm a part of the world. I would want people around me to bring in fresh grass clippings or to bring me flower petals, something that I can smell, essential oils, you know, bring me a recording of a waterfall so I can hear fast-moving water in nature. We don't think of doing things like that for people. Just because the act of death and dying has become such a clinical uh, such a clinical medicalized event that we really only think of doing it that one way. So death doulas are also great at bringing in fresh life when a person would otherwise feel kind of disconnected from their, their humanness. Like they're a part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. Like we spend so much time celebrating birth. Yes. Birth is such a wonderful time in people's lives but we have two ends of that and it, it we we isolate ourselves from the other piece of it because it feels scary or maybe it feels scary because we don't have conversations around it yeah uh, we just don't it's just not a topic that people want to talk about and or people will joke about so i th- i think you're right there's a lot of cultural conditioning and maybe there's some something else in inside of us that we're we're wired that that we don't want to talk about it so i think it is important that we have conversations around it and people like you who can help guide us through those um the, the those passageways um I, i'm curious about ha- have you been at with people when they have died or is this training with being a death doula too new that you have because of COVID that you Mm. haven't had as many opportunities as you would like? Well, that that's just it. So my training with, um, the death doula work goes back, uh, to two to three years now. I've taken three separate courses. So they happen over the course of a year. Mm. Um, I am working with a client right now who is nearing, the end of their life and they are having moments that, that we describe in these death doula courses and that, um, some, um, Instagram famous hospice nurses, they talk about this too. So people do have access, you know, thankfully because of social media, people do have access to accounts where medical professionals are starting to speak up more about what death looks like. Um, things that happen towards the end of your life that might, help bring a sense of comfort to people. And one of those things is 
uh, near death visioning. So that medically is not considered to be hallucination. The people that have near death visions uh, are lucid in their thinking and they can very calmly, lucidly describe seeing something that they understand isn't there, but they've they've witnessed it. They have a sense of peace around it. It's either, you know, a, a gentle light or, or an ancestor that they recognize, you know, maybe it's their mom or dad or, or just feeling a mm-hmm. sense of presence that they know that someone they love is in the room with them. So very recently, this happened with a client that I'm working with at the hospital. This client has um, dementia. It's progressed quite a ways now. Uh, and we haven't been able to hold a conversation in, I would say, months' time now. They're really reduced now to saying a couple words at a time. Uh, and they they kind of lose their place. If we try to have a conversation, they lose their place very quickly. And so, you know, there's never any finality to having a conversation. But last week, I was with them on the weekend. And they were whispering something to me, which they haven't normally what they do is just kind of mutter to themselves. But this time I could tell that they were intently whispering something to me. I leaned over. I said, I'm sorry, can you say that again? I I didn't hear what you said. And they said, there's people here. Now, again, I haven't heard them string a con like a, you know, several words together. So they, they said, there's people here. I said, Oh, do you know who they are? And they said, yes. And I said, how many people? They said, there's two. I said, okay. Are you okay? Do you want them here? And they said, yes. I said, do you know who they are? Yes. I said, okay, well, if you're comfortable and you know that you want them here and, you know, it's bringing a sense of, a sense of peace, then I, I would say that you can, that's okay. They can stay. Because I was about to say, like, if you don't want them here, then you can ask them to leave just to help empower them and just, mm-hmm. you know, maybe reduce some of their anxiety. But a lot of times people are like, no, this is good for me. I want this. So, yeah. you know, I just said, that's, that's okay. Amazing. They can stay. Yeah. And then, and this then is a person who had, had no, had, couldn't speak, yeah. put sentences together, but suddenly you were having this conversation. Do you yeah. feel like it's with their highest self, their soul or you know, because obviously dementia has taken the f- physical self. Right. Yeah. Cognitive decline and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And in, in the case of dementia, that, that is a little bit harder to try to figure out exactly where, where they were coming from. But we also know from, and I've seen in these uh, accounts that hospice nurses share on, on Instagram, they, there are plenty of examples of people having near envisioning and you'll see mm-hmm. things like they'll be laying in their bed and they'll be reaching out and stroking what seems to us to be the cheek of someone who's visiting at their bedside. Uh, I've myself had the experience of being next to my client and they look over and then they shift their body weight to look just past me as if there is someone standing right behind me. And there's like a sustained moment where they're looking and then they get a little bit of a smile and then they lay back down and I mean, of course we can't, there's no way for us to know exactly what's going on, but I can tell you that medicine is trying to figure out what's going on and they've gotten so far as understanding that it isn't a kind of psychosis. There is lucidity around it. So they're not, they're not categorizing it as a hallucination. It's something else. They just, we just, we just don't know yet. The science hasn't caught up with, uh, 
our ability our ability to est- investigate scientifically hasn't yeah. caught up. So hopefully one day we'll get there. But also there's a part of me that's like, I don't really want to know. <laughs> I'm okay not knowing. <laughs> it's so funny because my mother passed about five years ago. Mm. And I we had some incidents ins, instances like that. Yeah. And I would even notice maybe six weeks before I would lie in the bed with her and she was spending a lot of time napping then. And of course, she would just deny the fact that she was dying at all. You couldn't mm-hmm. have any conversations around death and dying. And yeah. but she would lie back and she would, I would hear her kind of say, it sounded like she was saying mum. And she go, mm. it almost sounded like like she was um, humming or something. But I was like, it sounded like she was like, mum. Mm-hmm. And then she would kind of like cough or choke and come too. And she would turn to me and say, I'm saying mum, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I often thought that she was beginning to leave, like maybe a foot in another ether and back. I don't know. But there were some other instances as well of things that she was seeing. And of course, one of the things that happens for us who are witnessing that, we tend to not honor that. We downplay it. We think, oh, they're hallucinating. They're doing whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't honor that whole process. That I think if you hear this a number of times, patterns, you know, hospice nurses that are seeing this, there's something going going on. And yes, we can't put our finger on it. But mm-hmm. um, I think there's some magic there that we want to believe in yeah. or experience and, and to honor that for those people who are who are going through that, that they're not crazy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's the interesting thing about working in this. All of us are confined by this medical biomedical model in healthcare, right? So it's challenging because unless you're a palliative care um, well, sometimes palliative care, because palliative care and hospice care aren't the same thing. Um, but if, especially if you're in hospice care, the training that you have in hospice care and the experience that you have in hospice care is not, um, you know, it's not accessed by every single medical professional. So in medicine, we give a lot of weight to doctors that can save a life preserve life, resuscitate life. We talk about extreme measures. We contextualize death as a medical event rather than an extremely natural process that we're all going to encounter. And because we've made it a medical event, there is all of this ego around trying to save a life. Um, and that can get that can get a little bit tricky because then converse, it's, it's medicalized. There's not enough conversation around what that person believes in spirit spiritually, right? Whether they have, Mm. that is a part. If you're looking at a whole person, if you're trying to help a whole person, you have to be comfortable with having conversations with them that might not strike you as scientific. That's a really hard thing for a professional to do. If they're leaning in medicine is strongly science, but they're, they're not, in medical training, they, they don't give a lot of time to that. Hmm. And at, you know, worst case, they think it's all just kind of fluffy. Right. Yeah. So it's, to me, it's interesting. If you had have had a conversation with me way back in the past, actually, there was a time that I would have considered myself atheist. Um, I'm much more soft with possibility now, I at the time would have would have, if I'm being honest, I, I probably at that time had a really big issue with vulnerability. And so I was looking for certainty. (laughs) (laughs) I was looking for certainty, I wanted to believe in atheism, because then 
there is no equation. Like I just know exactly what's happening. Um, and for better or worse, which arguably now I, it, it was worse, um, you know, for better or worse, that's what I believed in at the time. But since then I have been looking at things surrounding mortality and existential questions and what happens as we near death. And I've realized that we actually don't have a lot of these answers there. Like you said, there are patterns that we're noticing in people. If you want to, if you want to be a true scientist, you have to leave your mind open to possibility. That is what science is. If you want to believe in certitude and uncertainty, then that is scientism. That's not the same thing. Those two things aren't the same thing. Science is an approach. It's a way that we isolate variables, try to come to the closest thing, the truth that we have. Scientism is, is you have a vulnerability problem and you don't believe, you believe in the black and white. Paradox is outside of your realm of belief. Mm. But I've realized that having a, a softness to the possibility is, it's much more, it's, it's much more helpful to me. It, it reduces some of my anxiety and I did, uh, my mentor shared with me, he found a scientist, a PhD in uh, neuropsychology from the States. Her name is Lisa Miller. And she studies the, uh, the, um, she studies spirituality through a scientific lens. And she actually was able to find her and her research team was able to find the neural, neural correlates in the brain related to having a spirituality of any kind. And she clearly distinguishes between spirituality and religion in her research. They're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But her research has shown that there is a positive impact to leaving a lit, even if it's a little bit of room for some kind of sense of connection to a greater whole. If you can do that, if you can make room for that, you have the ability to experience more joy, more vitality, more peace. And when I became more familiar with that research, that's when I was like, okay, I, I can soften. I can soften a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's <been> beneficial. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's interesting how we all shift, you know, over time through our experiences, whether we become more spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I often think about that. I consider myself a spiritual person. I think, well, when did that happen? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think it's just a small shift as we have the experiences that challenge us and, 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 and maybe force us to open a little bit more. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah. Actually, that's true to what my experiences were too, because I was actually um, raised Roman Catholic. Me too. Oh, ooh, that was a tough one for me. <laughs> that was a tough one for me. I that you know that in in my journey, I ended up becoming atheist because I just had such a strong response to not having direct access to something bigger than myself. You know, in in that mm-hmm. teaching, it had to be funneled through. Uh, a, first of all, a human. Um, which we already know are not perfect and they're not infallible. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, I couldn't navigate that in my own mind. And then secondarily to that, I had a really big problem with the fact that they were all men. <laughs> I was just like, why can't women yeah. be? You know, I just, I, I yeah. never really felt at home and at peace mm-hmm. in that, in that uh, way of looking at the world and way of looking. Well, you're at not represented as a woman, no. in that religion. Per se, no, right? not so, at all. Not I mean, all. like you're right. You want you, you know, it's guided by that. So it's it's so interesting how you know. 
I have a lot of conversations with Roman Catholics. I'm sure. <laughs> and we, you know, our, our, and, we're, and it's always that response. Of, oh, you know, like, Ugh. you know, having to reconcile it. And for me, I think you're so interested. You, you, you challenged it in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I just saw myself as independent from it. I was going through the motions. But um, it's not until other things happen that you realize, it, you know, I was searching for something and I didn't know what. But mm-hmm. then you find it through, you know, another path. And it's, yes. you know, what I call a much more spiritual one. Yes. And for everybody that's different. And means means something differently, but it's always interesting. You know, I think we are meant to have those experiences to almost shove us onto our path. Mm-hmm. You know, if I didn't have that experience growing up, maybe I wouldn't have thought about anything. You know, yeah. like I don't know. Like it, only when you have experiences that you begin to question stuff, uh, or you begin to like tune the radio dial. You know, until you get the message that you want or find something that resonates with you. So. It's, I don't think it's lost, but it's certainly interesting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I completely One agree. One of the things um, you shared on your Instagram, um, you said, any conversation about death is really disguised conversation about living. And this was Attica and Tembi Locke. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a, um, a poignant statement. Can you say more about this from your perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that... When we're born, we'll go right from beginning to end. So when we're born, like freshly born, like we talked about before, there's all this celebration around birth. Um, there's just this this feeling of new beginning and of new life and of new possibility and potential. And there's a sacredness to it that everyone is super, super aware of. Um, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about and this is, you know, this is like highfalutin and waxing poetic and, and a little bit more in the realm of philosophy, but I do think it's important to what the suffering that we encounter at the end of life. So I I don't want to come across as morbid, but the second that we're born, we also, the, the ticking, the clock starts ticking. We don't like to think about that because we're very much in the moment of looking at the new life in front of us. Um, I think it's healthier for us to have an appreciation for the whole, not just for one side of the coin, because what happens is then we get to the end of our lives. And before a person dies, we already start treating them as if they're dead, right? There is something about getting a terminal illness, getting sequestered to a bed, uh, becoming disconnected from nature, becoming disconnected from vibrant conversation. All of a sudden, everyone's focused on your disease, um, people are constantly asking you how you feel today. I mean, you might, you might feel fine, but maybe you don't want to be asked that question every single time, multiple times a day. People are taking your temperature two or three times a day. You know, you just, you, again, you start feeling like I'm still alive and you guys are missing the point. Like, I know that I'm going to die, but I don't want to die until I've died. Right. That's, that's something that we talk about in these death doula courses. And so when people start, when people start opening themselves up to conversations around death and what's going to happen after death and what they want in terms of like ritual or ceremony, or just like the vibe in the room, what kind of vibe in the room do you want around you? They're not necessarily only talking about death. They're talking about how they want to live right up until the point that they die. Right. 
right? And so for me, I can tell you that, um, and these are things that you can request, but again, we don't, we don't tend to think of it that this, this way. I, I have plan. I already have plans for myself. If I get sick, I'm going to put a chair outside of the room that I'm in. And I'm going to ask people to have a sit in that chair and just stabilize themselves. Don't enter my room in a flurry. Um, mm. I'm already trying to take control of my nervous system and to stay calm myself. I want calm energy in my room. And it's not far be it for me to tell people how to feel. But if there is a certain awareness around me still that I matter and that my environment matters and that people care about the kind of environment that I'm sitting and stewing in, then you will help me still feel alive. You will help me still feel important. Like I'm not just a disease in a bed. Like I'm actually first with, within a certain context and within a situation. Mm. Do you see, do you so see what I mean? Like I, I, want, I want to feel as alive as I can even when I'm nearing death. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the what we miss. And you're so right. We tend to when someone gets sick or we we don't know how to handle that. And that's our ego um, of not or or the opposite or not the opposite, but just focusing too much on the the negative piece of, of the dying of what you've lost versus focusing on the living. Right. And and maybe that's that's just a cultural shift. That's something that we all have to practice mm -hmm. to remember that, you know, we're not gone until we're gone. I mean, even when people are lying in beds who, are, you know, are in comas, you know, there's always debate over can they hear us? Can they sense us? And I don't know. I think if people are whispering when they are um, in dementia state near the end about who's around, I think people can hear us. There's some piece of them mm -hmm. that can to do that that's just my own thing because so, i think if we're alive yeah we're alive yep absolutely i completely agree i'm of the same philosophy and i can actually tell you um that based on research we do know that hearing is the last sense to go before someone passes oh, so really? yes it is so i even, haven't heard that before yep even when people are unresponsive their ability to hear is still intact so you know wherever they are whatever they're doing, there's still the body's ability to hear. So we don't, we might not know where they are and they might not be responsive to us, but they can still hear. And whether or not they're making sense of what we're hearing is another thing, but that sense is still intact. And that brings a lot of people comfort. So see, this yes. is, this is the thing. It can both bring a sense of comfort to people or it can completely terrify people because what happens if you didn't know this information because the medical professionals don't have the time to adequately describe what it is to die because they're busy running tests and making sure their other patients are still intact, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you didn't know that and you're having hardcore intense conversations around the person in the bed and they can't say to you, I can hear everything you're saying and you're stressing me out, right? So that's, this, is, this is why, in my opinion, having hired a death doula is, um, can bring us a lot more, a sense of control, a sense of education and knowledge, um, and just a sense of comfort to people going through this process because there's a lot of education that we can share. It's not medical, and we... we, we clearly delineate that like we can't tell you when to take medication we can't help you take medication etc cetera, etc cetera. but we can tell you that based on research we know that 
uh, near near death visioning is a thing. We can tell you that hearing is the last sense to go. We can tell you that you actually have a lot more control over the environment that you might think. We can advocate for you if we become your uh, designated support person, like on paper with a hospital, we can advocate for people and be like, you know what, the environment in this room is not great. Can we maybe bring in some color, bring in some artwork? Is that okay with you? Can we bring in some plants? Can we play some music? Can we, um, you know, just stimulate this person's senses so they feel a little bit more alive in their body and in their mind? Variety is really good for the brain. So... Yeah. yeah. And I, and right up until the end, yes. I assume, right? Like yeah. it, it just, well, stimulating, like you talk about senses, like you help people through touch. Yeah. But um, I, I remember my, when my grandmother or my husband's grandmother was dying and she was in the hospital bed and could no longer speak and so on. And I remember there was a brochure on dying on the table. And I remember reading it and it was, you know, a few points around that, like, you know, continue talking to the person and so on but i thought oh wow we've reduced it to a brochure and 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 everything is so non-contact like i can see the value of someone like yourself to help people through that process or to be on the floor where people you know do will eventually pass so that people have someone a resource or or a conversation where you, you have conversations like this that would, I think, probably bring people a, a lot of comfort. Yeah. And there's things... And know how to treat the that person who is who is going to be experiencing death soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And death doulas also help uh, families. There is re- research behind if you have a plan for your grief, you your brain is better able to... Um, to, to run that program, right? So if, if you plan for, we'll say the moment that the death happens, what happens next? Sometimes people just stand there and look at each other and they're like, I don't, I don't know what happens now. Like we, we've only talked about the moment that they leave, but now what do we do, right? So death doulas are also great at helping people. Okay, the death has happened. Let's, let's do the ceremony part of it. And there is research that supports, um, And actually, we see this. I'm just going to tap in some of my anthropological background here. Um, Indigenous people have of of from all over the world. Indigenous people have rituals and ceremonies that are very intricately tied to their philosophy on life and death. So there is no question about what to do once someone dies in, in those cultures. But in the West, first of all, we're incredibly young in Canada. I mean, our, our lifespan in, in Canada is not, uh, as Canada, the nation, not, not the indigenous people here is obviously, but, uh, we, we don't have a sense of ritual around that. Again, that that's, we don't have a context for that. So we tend to struggle a little bit more because we're not grounded or anchored by anything. So death doulas can help people create rituals that will help them process the next steps. So, and you can make that look however you want. So there are people that, um, you know, once the, once the loved one dies, you can stand around the bed, uh, and you can read a letter that you would have already written, just sharing with the people around the room, how important this person was to you just to kind of bookend the experience. It helps bring a sense of closure. So that there's rituals around that. We know that funeral practices as well. There's a sense of closure that comes with that. 
Um, and then the rest of it is how do I process grief? So people create these what we call legacy projects. So that can either be sewing a quilt from this person. Maybe they were, you know, collecting sweaters or had a bunch of sweaters. You can sew a quilt from all of their sweaters. You can create something called a life scroll, which you can start working on the weeks before the person passes away. So that person can actually contribute to this project that you then have at the very end. It's tactile. Uh, often when people struggle with challenging times, we just, we know this inherently, we become very creative. Like our creative force as humans is very strong when we're struggling. That's when people start getting the urge to journal. That's when people start getting the urge to try something new, like pottery or painting or whatever. You can tap into those very human tendencies and create this project that you then have a visual cue for that's going to stay with you. If you want to go back in time and remember this person, you know, five, 10, 15 years from their death, you have this incredible legacy project that you can always go back to. It's almost like a shrine, right? Cause sometimes people get buried far away from home and then yeah. it's, it's buried or, you know, maybe wherever you spread a person's ashes so that can be far away from you. And it's nice to have a, a thing to go back to, we're, we're, we're people that, um, when we're alive, we, we really care about material things, right? So it's nice to have something to anchor you, something that you can look at, interact with, touch, uh, listen to, right? Maybe it's a piece of music that you've all composed as a family. There's so many different ways that art and creativity can help a family cope. And that's not, and, it, and another example of this is like, we don't talk about that in medicine, <laughs> But mm. it is tied to a family's well-being. If you can process grief in a way, and I don't want to pathologize grief. That's something I want to stay from. I was going to say, if you can process grief in a, in a more, I'm going to say in a more like a helpful way to you and not go into patterns that might be self-destructive, then that contributes, that contributes to your health and well-being, right? Why don't we talk about that in medicine? Why aren't doctors prepared to have even a quick conversation Conversation just to be like, hey, by the way, you can create a legacy project. They're not taught to do that. But death doulas are, right? So it's, yeah, in, in my opinion, we're important resources for people. Oh, absolutely. I, I think um, all these things that you've shared with us today, it's, it's, it'll give us lots to think about. This is meaningful work. Mm -hmm. Um, just all the things you said, you know, a family's well-being, <laughs> planning for grief, the things that we don't, you know, really consider. We just don't do, sometimes we don't do life well. So exactly. how do we think we're going to do death well? I'm curious, how does this work align with your soul's purpose or your life's purpose? Mm. <laughs> That's a big question. I like this question. I do think about it, um, fairly often. I, I've thought about this to myself multiple times. I think if there is an afterlife, I think what could possibly happen is I get there and one of the first people that I run into is going to be Mr. Fisher. And he's probably going to have this look on his face like, sorry, kid, like <laughs> it had to happen this way. And 
when I look back on my experiences of even when I was talking, when we were talking about spirituality and, you know, how broken I felt after being a part of the Roman Catholic Church and just trying to find my way again that way and feeling like I am tied to my sense of purpose and that sort of thing. I think the origin story of me coming to this point was the moment that I was filled with absolute trauma and dread the moment that I saw him at the hospital. Mm. And so I, part of my being able to make meaning of that trauma and build identity around it was thanks to Mr. Fisher and thanks to that, that experience. And even the, the terrible anxiety, because I did, I had this horrible existential dread that I carried with myself for, like I said, like a decade, I would sit in my classes at school at university and if the conversation circled back around to something having to do with mortality or death and dying, I would, I would shake. I would white knuckle the edges of my seat because all of a sudden I knew what that looked like. I knew what death was where before I didn't have any indication. And I just felt like, you know, the people around me were being so flippant and so casual around these conversations. And I almost just felt like yelling, like, do you people understand what we're talking about? (laughs) this is a really scary thing. And I was just filled with this anxiety that I did not know how to overcome. And so I did, it took me a long time, but I, I built meaning and identity and purpose out of it. And I was able to take something that just filled me with horror. And now I look at it in a much I would say that I have a healthy approach to my own mortality now. I'm holding it with a a kind of softness that I never knew I could. Um, I had a thought uh, a couple months ago. I was just considering sitting down and having a a coffee, and I had a candle that I was journaling. I was thinking about death. And I was like, I was thinking of it as almost like the misunderstood black sheep kid in the family. Where it's like, geez, we really don't know that much about you. God, I'm so sorry that I had such a terrible misunderstanding of what you are and what you stand for. And that that really helped me in that moment, just like reframing death as like the notion of the reaper, like, you know, some horrible visual that we have representing death. Why are we doing it that way? You know, why can't we soften it and look at it as something as sacred as birth, we might not know what happens afterwards, but does it matter? Like I, I, one of my favorite things that I came across is, uh, Betty White's mother. Um, mm. this is after Betty White has passed away and they were just, the media was talking about Betty White and all of her accomplishments and everything and how her mother had a really, um, uh, kind of wholesome approach to death and dying, which is that, if someone died in the family, she would turn to to Betty and she'd be like, oh, they know the secret. Oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing – and it's a, what a fabulous way to look at it. It is a fabulous way because, because it, it doesn't – it's not rooted in any kind of certainty. You're not like white-knuckling certainty around it. Like she didn't say, oh, they're in heaven. She didn't say, you know, oh, there's nothing after life. She just said, oh, they know the secret. And I – that's where I feel most comfortable I like not knowing what happens. The second that I try to make something extremely certain out of an experience, that's when I know that I've, I've, I'm looking at it from a place of fear at that point. And I'd rather, I'd rather look at it gently and softly. 
and and humbly, I don't I don't know the answer, but whatever it is, it's got to be something. It's got to be one heck of an experience when you're passing because we we have heard of people coming back from from death, people that have been resuscitated. And so there's a difference between near-death visioning and near-death experiences. The latter, people actually die and come back. And medicine is also trying to study that now. It's trying to study it, study it worldwide as well. And there are characteristics and patterns across all of those stories where they talk about people moving through a tunnel, uh, coming across a bright light, feeling a sense of oneness, feeling so much bigger than the container of, of their body, just feeling like they're expansive and incredible and powerful. So if that's something that we can see a pattern in, whether it's a function of like maybe your physiology, maybe our cells, our bodies are just like, cause our body does hold innate wisdom. Maybe it just knows how to die well. And we think that suffering must be there because you look scary when you're, you know, depleted and, and, you know, there's the death rattle and all of, all of the sensory things that we, we fear around death. Um, you know, your eyes might be sunken in, your jaw might be open, but maybe their experience within their own body and their own mind is completely different to the way that they look. Maybe they have a sense of, uh, just comfort moving through the process that we just don't understand. So whether it's something physiological or whether it actually is something where you're moving through some sort of a, a veil and you're connecting back to a singular consciousness and all of a sudden you're a part of it again, either of those two experiences sound okay to me. So I don't, I don't have to know the answer. I'm okay. Not knowing. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me today. Um, yeah, it's 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 good to have conversations like this because it's not a topic that we talk about enough. And really, when I think about it on the podcast, I, I can only think of one other conversation around death specifically. So mm. I was delighted to um, come across you on Instagram. I encourage people to go follow you. Um, what is your uh, Instagram handle or f- Facebook? Do you have a Facebook page? I do have a Facebook page. Uh, so on Facebook, you can just search Ashley Brzezicki. Last name is B-R-Z. E-Z-I-C-K-I. On Instagram, it's uh, ash.rmt.deathdoula. And I do have a LinkedIn as well. You can search my my name, Ashley Brzezicki, there and find me. I, I will have, a, I'm in the process of building a, a website as well. So I'll be putting all kinds of blogs up and resources and uh, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I'm in the middle of building all of that side of the business up. And so you'll, you'll be seeing and hearing much more of me, I'm sure. I'm, I'm just I'm just getting started. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing a piece of your knowledge today, a piece of you and your thoughts. I really uh, appreciated that. And I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you, Ashley. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so happy that we met. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Coach Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.